Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko in another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If, time, chimes, if times get tough, or even if they don't, today is September the 16th, 2022. This episode 3,168 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a great lineup of expert council members for you. I was actually in doubt of, about getting an expert council show done this week. I, I need to not doubt my council members. These guys are great. Um, but I was almost out of content. I had like a couple pieces from, well, there's certain council members that like constantly have new material to me, even if you guys don't ask questions. And, but I shook the piker tree and just tons of content came in. Here's what I got for you this week. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, Dr. Paul says governments are going to return to gold because they have to. I don't know if I agree with that, but we'll hear what Dr. Paul has to say, and I'll give you some thoughts on it. Dan McAdams said power granted to government against non-citizens is now being applied to citizens. That's what they always do. We'll talk about that one, too. And Chris Rossini says that Europe bit the hand that feeds them, and Americans should take note. Yeah, in more than one way. I'll have some follow-up on that one, too. John Pugliano will talk about buying a business with a high employee headcount. This one came into me. And I'm like, I can't do it. I hate employees. I would just say don't do it. And it's not, it's not a fair answer. John gave a great answer. Uh, Jeff Lawton is going to talk about what's going on right now with Sri Lanka and the lessons from it and why the people that are saying things like go green, go hungry are wrong, but not – like it's a dumb thing to say the way that it's being said, but yet there's a big lesson in what Sri Lanka tried to do here And it's an impetus for us to act a little bit differently and a little bit faster at the same time. Uh, Nick Ferguson will talk about choosing dual-purpose trees around like sidewalks and pathways. Sean Mills will talk about keeping stock tanks from freezing up without grid power. A person actually want to know, you know, basically, how do I do it with solar? And my response to Sean is, you probably don't do it in any way cost-effectively. And he seemed to agree, but he had some suggestions, and I think they're really good ones. And then Tim Toolman Cook will talk about getting your deck ready for winter. This is a big issue, especially y'all that live in the northern climates. Like the winter's the good time for my deck. The, the summer's work gets beat to death by the you know solar radiation that's through the roof and hobbits come and throw rings in my my backyard to get rid of them and all. But in the northern climates, you really do need to think about some winter prep for your deck. That's when the most damage happens. And let's be honest, with the cost of lumber, even though it's come down a lot, a deck is a serious financial investment, and we want to get as many years as possible out of our decks. And then I'm going to talk about a real short segment for me today. Um, but it's just something that, that, that started to finally work here for me and what's left of my garden this year, because I, I pared my garden way down this year. I just decided to make it a rebuilding year. And that's a plant that I told you guys about in an episode this winter, getting ready to come into spring with new plants to get from uh, Baker Creek and other catalogs. It's called Python Snake Bean, and it's actually a gourd. And I haven't actually eaten any of them yet, except I ate one little one to see how they taste. It tasted fine. Um, but they're starting to really all of a sudden put on a bunch of them. And I want to tell you a little bit about this plant. I think this is one of those plants that, like Trombocino zucchini and, and, and Asian long beans, and if you have aquatic systems, Kang Kong, also known as Ipomoea aquatica, uh, water spinach, etc., uh, it's all the same plant. 
there are certain plants that I think belong in, in like the food security kit. And I think this might be one of them, and I'll, I'll tell you some of the pretty amazing things about why that is the case. So we're going to do all that. Before I uh, bring Dr. Paul's crew on, though, I want to remind you that I will be at the Self-Reliance Festival, and it won't be very long from now. It's only a few weeks out. Self-Reliance Festival will be August. Uh, I'm sorry, October 1st and 2nd in Camden, Tennessee. It is going to be a great event. I will be there presenting on aquatics. If you guys want to know more about that, definitely you want to come there. Uh, Billy Bond will be there. Uh, Nicole Sauce and John Willis, of course, since they're running it. A ton of great speakers. Uh, Tim Toolman Cook will be there. Uh, Xavier Hawk is going to be there. Uh, Dr. Ken Berry is going to be there. Uh, really a great event. Uh, lots of options for you know how to come. There's a VIP ticket. There's a, a far more low-cost ticket to just hang out and see all the presenters. Uh, the VIP ticket includes dinner with myself and, and many of the other presenters. Uh, you, you, I did this event in June, and except for the fact that there was an unseasonably hot heat wave uh, this June right in the middle, of it, it was amazing, so amazing I agreed to go back. And those of you who have not been to one of my workshops yet and have not met my buddy David, who gets invoked often on the air, he's coming with me. David and I are rolling up their Cannonball Run style in Val, my uh, – my Dodge Challenger, uh, with his uh, service dog, Poncho. And so you get to meet him, too. It'll be a lot of fun. Check it out. You want to learn more, I have a link in the episode notes today. Uh, you can find it at survivalpodcast.com under this episode number. Please do consider coming on out and meeting us. On top of that, if you're not going to be in Tennessee, or even if you are going to be in Tennessee, remember my fall workshop, which is a three-and-a-half-day extravaganza, one of the, the most amazing networking events you'll ever be to. It's big, but it's small. It's only 50 people. And it's three and a half days. Actually, it's really more like four and a half days with 50 people. It is amazing food. It's amazing instruction. It is awesome. And it sells out in minutes. It sells out in minutes. And with that being the case, if you want to come this year, make sure that you are in front of your Telegram app, on the TSP Telegram channel or group, either one. It'll go to both of them immediately when I put it out. At 9.30 Central Standard Time on Saturday, the 24th of September. Let me just make sure I don't have it wrong. It is the 24th, 09.30 Central Standard Time. The reason I keep harping on this, when I put it up for sale, it is going to sell out in minutes. I know that it is. Last year it sold out in about two minutes. This year there's 15 less seats. And I think that it's it's because we keep it relative. I'm still, you know, with staff and all, 70 people, relatively small, where people have access to each other, people can find each other, people can hang out with me and the other presenters. There's really nothing else like it. And so, if you haven't been to one, take a shot, uh, but don't sleep in, or you will not be able to get a ticket. It will sell out. It always does. All right. With that, let's go ahead and dive into it and hear from Dr. Paul. Dan McAdams and Chris Rossini, in that order. Today, Chris, we're going to be talking about something that is very important. And I've been toying with the idea of uh, dealing with uh, gold as money. But, uh, you know, I went to Washington to help straighten that mess out. And I don't know what I've done. I've gotten a little bit of attention, but not necessarily. But I do think the world and the, our government is moving toward 
the importance of gold being used in a monetary system. Not because, uh, you know, the economists of our universities and the politicians mm-hmm. in Washington all of a sudden said, hey, Ron Paul was right, we got to go to the gold standard. It's out of, out of desperation that paper money always fails. So that is the reason I concentrate on protecting freedom and protecting liberty and protecting sound money because that is what is going to enhance, you know, the people's uh, uh, ability, their standard of liberty, living, and, uh, and, and a much better society. But uh, it, it is not a complex system. It's just uh, recognizing that people have a right to their life and their liberty and they should have a right to the fruits of their labor. And uh, all of a sudden, you have a couple rules to follow. You can't kill people. You can't lie to people. You can't, uh, you, you know, harm people. And you can't mess up their property. Oh, that, that's the case, huh? And you, yes, and if you, you're not allowed to rob your neighbor and you can't send your congressman to rob from the neighbor because you want something. It's it's not all that complicated, but the one incentive people say, well, that's too much trouble. I like a free lunch. I tell you what, your free lunch is going to disappear. But if you have this system where you have freedom of choice and you have volunteerism, believe me, you won't be begging for more welfareism in a country that can't afford it. So the system, the system right now is in a position where it's going to be changed. The monetary system is going to change. There will be reform. And we can start off by start by being serious about the Federal Reserve and serious about sound money. Yeah, and you know, remember back when they were creating the Department of Homeland Security, it was right after 9-11. They said, oh, no, no, Ron, we're going to combine these. It's going to be more efficient. We're going to combine these government agencies, and we're going to better be able to deal with terrorist threats to the United States. And, of course, your thought at the time, and you had written several statements, you made so, so many floor speeches about it, they're going to turn the Homeland Security against us. Oh, Ron, you're just, you're paranoid. Well, that's what happened. And let's look at the article that you referenced this morning. DHS chief says biggest terror threat is Americans radicalized by online narratives. What does that mean? Are they reading uh, the Al-Qaeda handbook? No. If you get into the details... Of the article, let's go to the next one. This is Mayorkas, the head of the Homeland Security. The individual here in the United States radicalized by vi- to violence by foreign terrorist ideology, but also an ideology of hate, anti-government sentiment, false narratives propagated on online platforms, and even personal grievances. So essentially what they're saying is if you don't like the government, if you think the government is bad, if you think the administration is bad, uh, and you maybe you post about it. I really don't like that Biden. He sure is messing things up. Well, these are the new terrorists, according to Mayorkas. It's blatant. It's out there in the open. They consider the president himself said, you know, about a week or so ago, half the country are evil, terrible people and they need to be prosecuted or worse. And now we're having the Homeland Security. If you maybe you question the masks, maybe you didn't like the vaccines. Uh, maybe you don't like the way Biden's handling the economy. Maybe you don't support sending all our money to Ukraine. Well, these are the online narratives that now define terrorism. I hope Americans are learning a lesson from Europe's misery. Uh, but what concerns me is American attitudes, perhaps even future American attitudes towards China. And you brought up China, how dependent we are on them, not just for rare earth metals, for just about everything. And it's not because we have any love for China, but I do have love for this country. And I'd hate for them to do like what Europe has done to themselves, which is harm themselves. 
you know, needlessly. Uh, and when we think of China, we should not be fooled by the whole rhetoric of freedom and democracy versus communism in China. That's, you know, both countries, ours and theirs, it's a marriage of government and corporations. They are corporatists. China is not communist like Mao or the Soviet Union. They would still be in abject poverty because communism is unworkable. If they're communists, they're more capitalist than us in many respects. And we're more socialist than they are in many respects. You know, we have our own problems with socialism. We don't have to go all the way around the world to go find socialists to go do battle with, you know. So before we villainize China, we should really sit back and think about, you know, go to any store. Look at, uh, like, Dr. Paul, the rare earths. You know, we depend so much on that region of Asia. Uh, you know, Europe villainized Russia over over Ukraine, but Europe depends the, uh, you know, so much on Russia. So Europe bit the hand that feeds them, and now they are suffering terribly. Now, China is terrible when it comes to civil liberties and individual liberty. And it's, you know, it's not surprising. Individual liberty is a Western Christian idea. It's, it's, it didn't come from the East. So, but China is not our government. My concern is my government and what they think and do with civil liberties. And my government locked us down for two years. They destroyed our economy. They tried to force jabs into people, and they're destroying our money. Now, is it rational for me to sit here and stew over China when my government is doing this to me? I mean, that is just a very unself-aware way to go about living. It's actually kind of hard to believe that that much could be packed into six minutes and six seconds. That's how long that segment was, those, those three segments together, six minutes, six seconds. Let's try to pick a little bit of it apart. This is going to be one of the absolute rare times that, that I disagree with Dr. Ron Paul. I mean, absolutely, totally rare exception to the rule. Um. I do not think the governments of the world, and specifically the United States and other advanced Western nations, are going to go back to the gold standard, certainly not anytime soon, and probably not ever. And I don't think that because I'm a Bitcoin maximalist. That's not why. I think my understanding of Bitcoin might have some something to do with it. I always try to admit my biases. But the reason I don't think we're going to go back to a gold standard is I don't believe it can work. With one caveat. We could go back to a gold standard if we're going to lie about it, which is one of the inherent weaknesses of gold. The problem with gold, gold is a great form of money before computers exist. Gold is a great form of money when the way that gold works is that you have custody of your gold, or if you are going to trust a bank with it, the bank is the bank right over there that you can go to and get your gold out of and demand your gold or you know that there's an agreement between Bank A and Bank B, and you can have a note, and you can go recover your gold when you get done with your travel. right? It's not perfect, but it's damn better than a fiat-based money system. Okay, We don't live in that world anymore. We live in a world with 24-7, 365 transactions around the globe. Gold is slow. Gold does not work in that system. And the only way gold can work in that system is to trust in an auditable third party. 
And that was always its weakness, but it was the best we had, so it's what we used. So that's one, that's an inherent problem with gold. It doesn't work in a monetary system moving money cross-border internationally 24-7-365. And Bitcoin does, right? But if it's not, it, I don't think Bitcoin will be the government solution either. It might be the market solution, but it won't be the government solution. Government can't do this now. Everything is too broken, and gold will reveal, or any hard monetary instrument used as a national reserve for any of these major nations will reveal how broken it is. It, will, it doesn't fix the problem, and it causes more pain, and pol politicians do not have the stomach to do it. Could they go to some sort of partial gold reserve system? Like, let's say, pre-1971? Roll back that far instead of rolling all, back, all the way back pre-1913? They could, but I don't think they will either. I think the governments of the world are going to adopt some form of digital monetary instrument and rebase accordingly against it. And I still say I think the most probable course of action is to bring the concept of stable coins under FDIC and, and globalize the dollar in an attempt to diffuse inflation across billions of people instead of 350 million people. I think that's the most probable play. I'm not even saying it's going to work. I think that's the most probable play. Certainly they're going to try something like that or akin to that or a CBDC or something, oh, some sort of rebasement back into the fee, a new reset of the fiat realm prior to any adoption of gold. The other thing they could do, though, is they could increase the reserve requirements of the individual banks that make up the Federal Reserve of the gold they are required to hold and thereby try to create a pseudo-gold standard, which I don't think works either. Like So I, I just I think Dr. Paul is a brilliant man, but this has been his thing for his entire life. And I think it just might be very hard to let go of. I, and I could be wrong. Dr. Paul could be right. That's just what I think. Uh, next up, on what Dan McAdams had to say about turning the apparatus of the state and the powers that were granted to go after terrorists who were only non-citizens and foreigners being turned against the United States. Well, duh, of course. And why do you think they're referring to us now? And when I say us, I mean anybody who objects to them is a terrorist. Well, then you fall under this, and now we can use the powers that we wouldn't have against a, a, a good citizen who was a, who's also a criminal. We can use it against you. You don't actually have to commit a crime to be prosecuted as a terrorist. You just, if you're a terrorist, you are a criminal by default. It, it makes me think of some of the dystopian uh, if, you know, things looking at the future where when someone is taken before a court, instead of referring to them as something like the accused, they refer to them as the criminal. The criminal. Will the criminal please stand? You're already judged guilty... And therefore, it is up to you to, to, to prove your innocence versus incumbent upon the state to prove your guilt. That's how dictatorships work. That's where we're going. And yes, people like Ron Paul, people like Dan McAdams, people, all kinds of people in the liberty movement, including yours truly, 
said this is what would happen when this was being done. We, we, we raised red flag upon red flag of warning when they passed the Patriot Act. And we were called kooks, and we were called crazy, and now they're doing it. And now they're doing it. And I'll tell you one thing they are doing right now. This is important to understand. They know they are going to lose in November. They are trying to load up the magazines with as much ammunition against the right as they can before they lose the cover fire being provided by a complete Democrat control of the House and the Senate. I am not saying the Democrats will lose the Senate. They may, in fact, actually gain full control of the Senate, not needing VP Harris heels up to do it. They may. They may not. I don't know. That's a hard one to pull. It's a, it's, a, it's a weird grouping of races. It's very difficult to decipher. And there's some really dumb... There's really some dumb going on in some of the states with the fact that like Pennsylvania is about to elect a senator for six years who, until he was over 50 years old, literally did live in his parents' basement. I mean, Literally lived in his parents' basement. And, of course, the GOP decided to, to run a New Jersey Democrat, a New Jersey liberal, Dr. Oz, as a Republican candidate in Pennsylvania. So that's floating like a lead balloon. So I don't... But the, the House, the House is going to be able to tear into them. It is a false dichotomy, but it is two mafia families fighting for control. And they're trying to get... That's why they like just seized the pillow guy's phone, Mike Lindell. The FBI stopped him on the street at a Hardee's and took his phone away from him. Like, you need, do you need to do this? I want you to think about this. Do you need to do this? If you're the FBI and you have legit, you can go to a, a, a judge and say, hey, we need to know what Mike Lindell has on his phone. Then you can get a warrant and you can go to a cell provider and you can find out everything on his phone without him knowing it. You only do this for, this is Stasi tactics. This is, this is freaking Gestapo tactics. This is intimidation. All right. Next, the last thing that Chris said about Europe biting the hand it feeds it. Man, I can't agree more except I want to point a key difference out here. Europe bit the hand it feeds it, and it doesn't have an alternative. It doesn't have an alternative. The United States, we are literally hand-feeding us in many ways is China, right down to the raw materials to make our freaking antibiotics. But we do have alternatives, and we refuse to build them up. And, and so we are creating a dangerous situation we do not have to be in. Europe cannot produce enough energy for itself. And the only source that's really readily available is Russia. They have no real choice. We do, and we refuse to do anything about it, and we keep delaying, and we're literally setting up a disaster. I have a different one. For, I have a, a, a segment coming next from John Pugliano on it. I'm buying a business with employees. But the next one is from Jeff Lawton. Think about my words when you hear what Jeff has to say in a totally different way. Hello, TSP. We have a question from Marcus, and he's come upon a rare opportunity that could be either a curse or a blessing. Marcus has the opportunity to buy into a business partnership at the company where he's currently employed. Now, depending upon the valuation for which he can buy into this company, it may look like a really good deal on paper, but his role at the company would significantly change because he'd go from a position where he pretty much has a great deal of personal autonomy to, you know, moving up into upper management where he has to take on the responsibility of managing, you know, in excess of 50 employees. So it's a real career shift, but he has concerns because his question is, what sort of things should I consider from a lifestyle perspective 
when buying a business with so many employees. Now, there's a lot of directions you could go with this. Let me just suggest two things to you. Number one, have a real come-to-Jesus meeting with yourself and look at the future potential of this role and see if you really see yourself enjoying it and being able to put everything you have into it to making it a success. Because you're going to be a part owner and you're going to have to live that business 24-7. And if you want to take on that challenge, then go for it, move out of your comfort zone and make it happen. But on the other hand, if you think it's just going to make you miserable, then I would advise you not to do it. The other thing to think about is what about an alternative situation? You know, this doesn't necessarily have to be binary. They've offered you an opportunity to come in and buy a partnership, but do you have the opportunity to maybe make a counter offer? You know, I'm not sure exactly how your company's structured, but is there that possibility that rather than buying in as a partner and getting saddled with all these employees, you can just melon scoop out the chunk of the business that you think you can really excel at and that you would enjoy not only owning but also working at? As a side note, if you did something like that, you'd be killing two birds with one stone because you'd not only have less or maybe no employees, but you also wouldn't be getting into a partnership. Now, in your question, you really didn't bring up the fact that you're going to be in a partnership, but personally, if it were me, I would much rather be buying a business with employees than buying into a business with a partner. Because with employees, I can always fire them or hire new talent or replace them with automation. So it's much easier to get rid of an employee than it is to break up a partnership. And then along those same lines as, you know, just melon scooping out a piece of the business, perhaps you could work a deal where you're not buying anything at all, but you use this transition and corporate structure to allow you to stop working there as an employee and set up some type of a long-term contract where they're hiring you as an individual to either perform the same services that you did before or, you know, again, to take on an expanding role, but just not one that involves being a partner nor dealing with all the 50-plus employees. The real advantage there is that you wouldn't have to put up any equity because you're not buying into the business. You're simply spinning off and starting your own independent business. And then, of course, also you wouldn't have a partner and you'd most likely be doing something very similar to what you do now, but it would allow you the opportunity to take all that expertise you have at your current company, and while you're still providing them that service, you could figure out how to scale up your business to where you could do that for other companies. So, hey, there's a couple options for you to think about. Marcus, you know me. You know how to get in touch with me. Feel free to give me a call. We could war game out some other situations or I'd be happy to be a sounding board for you as you look at the valuation and see if from a financial standpoint, this opportunity makes sense for you. Well, hey, as always, thanks for the questions. Until the next time, this is John Pagliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. I think John did a, a much more even-handed and uh, reasonable response than I would have given, giving my complete loathing of managing employees. And that's why I said it to him. With that, let's go ahead and hear... Uh, from Jeff Lawton. And I want you to listen on this one. On this, I didn't even know this was happening. So Sri Lanka went like all in on going organic overnight. They went too quick with it. But of course, the people that are opposed to like the green revolution, going green, growing, like doing it the right way are like, see, see, if you don't use all these chemicals, you'll die. You'll starve to death. There's a lesson here, but that's not the lesson. So I didn't even know this was going on, and this is so nobody asked about this. Jeff did this on his own, and I, I think it's great. And I want you to, again, think back to what we were talking about with 
Europe biting the hand that feeds it, and us not needing to be dependent on China, but yet we are for so many things. And then think about it from a, a totally different context, what Jeff's talking about here. I'd like to bring up a subject here that uh, I find rather concerning. Uh, there are quite a few videos going around on the Internet accusing um, the Sri Lanka situation, um, which has uh, collapsed its economy and its food supply systems because it went green overnight. It literally went organic, the first organic country. Um, and um, we have videos out there titled Go Green, Go Hungry. Well, this is kind of ridiculous because you can't suddenly transition from industrial agriculture with its grossly unnatural patterns and at a scale size and then expect to immediately switch off all those chemicals and, and, and go green and uh, without farmers trained in how we repattern and diversify agriculture and bring it back to a scale divided by tree systems. And most of those contour water harvesting tree lines that we need to put through agriculture are in great need because industrial agriculture is highly deficient in tree interactions. But it's not just trees. It's productive ecosystem tree lines in between our crops. And then our crops need to be diversified and patterned so they harmonize with the form of the landscape. None of that took place in Sri Lanka. They kind of went green overnight as the first truly organic country. And of course, it all just fell apart. And it would anywhere. It will across America, it will across Asia, any country. And that is most countries. We have to get to 3% organic matter before we even get stability in our soils. Forget about carbon, it's just the organic matter. At 3% organic matter in our soils, you can drop your water demand by 10%. At 6 to 8% organic matter in your soils, you can drop your water demand by 50%. And at 10 to 15% organic matter in the soil, you can drop your water demand by 75%. <laughs> the best industrial agricultural soils in the world at this present point in time are in Europe and they're only at one and a half percent organic matter. They're only halfway there. They're only halfway to three percent. America's on average sitting at 0.5 percent organic matter and India, I presume Sri Lanka as well, it, it is around 0.3 percent. Now, your first return of surplus as return of surplus is one of our ethics in permaculture, our third ethic. So care for the earth and its environments, its living systems and its non-living systems, then care for the people so they can care for the environment. Caring for the environment and caring for the people are a feedback loop. But return of surplus is the third ethic. And we need to return surplus back to the environment. You can't just take, take, take and then add chemical substitutes for organic matter because you have no life support in your soils. So we need tree ecosystems, long-term perennial ecosystems in our farming interactions with productivity. There's no question about that. And the first return of surplus needs to be organic matter. We need organic matter production within our systems. We've got all kinds of technology where we can use shredders, 
um, and, and wood chip uh, productive trees that regrow after, after careful cutting. Um, we have um, compost windrow turners. We can add good quality forage from diverse pastures. We can maintain as pasture productivity through inputs of compost and compost teas. Uh, we can add animal manures and make high quality compost. And we can use oxygenated compost teas with quite simple technology, checking it with microscopes and adding fertility back to our soils, building organic matter. This is crucial that we do this. It's the only way we're going to get to a sustainable system. We can input diversity into pastures with simple toe, applic- toe mis- uh, in- in- instruments and, and, and equipment behind tractors. They don't take very much diesel to run. They're quite simple. They will imprint and spike the pasture and you can then add diversity of pasture seed and you can dribble in compost tea directly. So you can upcycle the productivity of pasture. You can use low-pressure sprayers to spray oxygenated compost tea diversity onto your productive tree lines and your biomass producing tree lines and you have a self-cycling, self-replicating agriculture and we need to repattern it very rapidly if we don't want to go into severe famines. The, The false flag here where we're saying go green, go organic is just that. It's an absolute false flag. If you want to build organic matter quickly, then scale down into smaller systems, systems that of just less than an acre, half an acre, quarter of an acre, small gardens can build organic matter very rapidly and produce enormous production per square meter, outstripping the production of industrial agriculture per square meter by many, many times and hundreds of times if you're going to count the nutritional quality of the food. So wake up, people. Don't be fooled. Do you get the tie-in here? From from um, Chris's segment about being dependent on China, and unlike Europe, we don't have to be. We don't have to need China to be able to produce antibiotics, but we do. And and, and the, the bigger problem is it, it, we are not doing anything to change that. We do not need to be dependent on China for all needs that come with, with developing alternative energy like solar. We don't need to be. We have, we have created a regulationary nightmare that overburdens companies producing the stuff to the point that it doesn't make sense to do business in the United States. But there are other, even if we wanted to do that, which is dumb, there are other countries we could be doing business with. We don't have to be in this position, but we are. There is nothing worse than being able to look into your future and see a disaster that's unavoidable. And just think, i got to make the best that I can until it happens and when it happens. That's a horrible thing. There's, mu- there's nothing more self-suicidal, though. There's nothing more suicidal than to be able to look well into the future, see this inevitable outcome, and not do something when you could do something. That's the United States and China. It's also the United States with this agricultural time bomb that we're on. 
I'm telling you, I have heard from people in the United States Department of Agriculture, NRCS, etc., who have told me, you're not wrong. We all know. We all know the inevitability of more and more crop failures. We all know what's being done to our soils. We all know about the exportation of topsoil. We all know. And very few of us know what to do, but those who do know what to do are not being listened to. We don't have to destroy our agricultural capacity in the United States. We can restore things. There are so many ways to do it. Small-scale ag, like Jeff was talking about everywhere, starting in the backyards, yes, sure. But broad-scale, broad-acre, ruminant-based systems could restore the United States to the dominant position that we do belong in. And we don't belong in it because America, we belong in it because we have the capacity for it. There is no nation with the natural resource for this like us that has a combination of the technology, the living standard, the workforce, and the land and natural resources to do it. The Great Plains of the United States could be the most productive food system in the most sustainable way ever, very quickly. Very quickly. And we know what to do. And we won't do it. The massive amount of our nation in the form of soil that goes down the Mississippi River and kills an area in the Gulf of Mexico at the Louisiana Delta, bigger than the state of Rhode Island every year, doesn't have to happen. For less money than we have sent to Ukraine... We could have fixed it 20 years ago, and we won't. The ecosystem destruction going on out of Lake Okeechobee into the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean, causing massive algal blooms and all the other problems that are being caused down there, one of the most beautiful places in the world, the place is very close to my heart, we could fix that for half of what we sent to Ukraine, and we won't do it. The droughts that go on in California could largely be mitigated if we would simply harvest and store and distribute the rainfall that does fall there instead of putting it in drainage systems, sending it down the L.A. River, etc., and out to sea. The drought systems and the water depletion in the western United States, if we would stop telling farmers you can't store water and let them put in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tiny ponds that would catch snowmelt, and the limited rainfall that they get, we could fix it, but we won't. And I could keep going because it's not my segment today. We have an absolute catastrophic future. And I didn't even talk about the fact that how many of these fields have been drenched with persistent herbicides using GMO crops. And what happens when that stops working? And then you're trying to go organic in a field that's literally drenched and 2,4-D, and glyphosate, and some of these other, I think like mithropyritol, and things that have 20-year half-lives. And we won't do it. We won't fix it. But the solution, as Bill Mollison once said, is embarrassingly simple. I think I might get Jeff on. He and I should have a discussion on this very thing. Anyway, next up, let's talk about dual-purpose trees with Nick Ferguson. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com here with an expert counsel answer on selecting trees for positions near sidewalks 
that have dual purposes like for fodder. But first, I have two requests for the TSP network of fine folks. I am going to be hopefully ordering some soil amendments from Seven Springs Farm in Czech, Virginia. If you're hearing this and you're coming to the Self-Reliance Festival or to Nicole's Food Forest Workshop and you don't mind swinging by Czech, Virginia on your way to one of those events to pick up some bags of rock phosphate for me, please shoot me an email and I'd be happy to barter trees or consulting for your time or, I don't know, pay for fuel usage. It's kind of cost prohibitive to ship 50-pound sacks of stuff, especially if you're talking about 200 or so pounds of rock phosphate. Um, And the second quick request, I'm looking for a venue in central to eastern Texas for about 50 or so people for a church retreat. I know the TSP crowd is vast, and there's a good chance someone who listens has or works at an event venue who can house 50-plus people and provide a meeting room possibly even catering, not not sure, and uh, the, the population count might change up or down. It just depends on, on who all we get to go. So if you can help me out with either of those two things, please shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com with, uh, I don't know, soil help or venue help in the subject line. Thanks so much, guys. Now on to reading the listener's question and answer. This is for Nick Ferguson. Question, what fodder trees would be best to plant near concrete patios, sidewalks, or irrigation lines that could also serve as shade trees? Details, I live in dry zone 8 and will be replacing two shade trees this winter. I would like them to also be fodder trees for rabbits. Ideally, the trees could grow large and fill out into shade trees rather than coppicing. Can you recommend any varieties that won't damage a patio sidewalk or nearby sewer line with large roots? I have approximately 7 to 10 feet diameter clear before hitting sidewalk or sewer line. Also, what fertilizer would you recommend to speed up growth a bit in the first few years? Hopefully, I'll be ordering from Rare Plant Store in January. Thanks, Don. Well, as of now, nothing I have is going to be a good recommendation for that, although I might have one of these uh, trees that I'm going to mention. Um, But that's an interesting question, Don. So if you're in Zone 8 and in a dry region, you'll need drought tolerance and also a more shallow, more fibrous root system if you're near a sidewalk. So I'm okay with this particular tree suggestion near a sidewalk. Uh, The only tree I know of that checks those boxes while being a good fodder tree and also looks nice as a landscaping tree is the Chinese elm tree called Ulmus parvifolia, also known as lace bark elm. You can find them at most landscaping stores, big box stores that sell landscaping trees and stuff. Uh, and it's one of my favorite landscaping trees, and it's an excellent candidate for more dry land fodder production. I will say this the more you prune on a landscaping tree, generally the uglier they become, at least during the wintertime when they lose their leaves. But that tree checks all those boxes and should give you at least a small yield of fodder for your rabbits while looking great in the yard. I will say this, though, just to cover my own butt, I would never be planting any tree within seven feet of a sewage line. Because if you do that, most likely you're not going to be needing much fertilizer, if you know what I mean. Uh... 
as for what kind of ferts to give trees, man, I wouldn't get too in the weeds about this. Any general tree fertilizer or heck, any general fertilizer will be just fine. I'm partial to MicroLife if you're in Texas. Otherwise, just pick a general purpose fertilizer that aligns with how crunchy you feel that particular week. If you're the organic type of person, go with an organic natural fertilizer. Otherwise, you can use dreaded synthetic fertilizer and not do too much harm to your soils if you're just using it a couple years in a row. The main thing you need to do for trees is keep the trees cool and moist. Thick mulch, don't cover the root flare, keep the tr- the soil mo- moist, and I mean you can do simple things like use seed meal and alfalfa pellets and you could use, I mean, shoot, you could use chicken laying pellets for fertilizer just to feed the soil and feed earthworms and get some nutrients in the soil. So, uh, I hope that helps. Best of luck in your tree growing endeavors. And remember, folks, if you're able to help me out on either one of those earlier requests, please shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. Do good things. So, I... I just think that no matter what you do, if you're trying to accomplish what you asked about, you're you're not going to get that much in the way of fodder. And one thing I would point out, not in the space you're asking about, because if you put willows near a sewer line, willow will really go for it, if you know what I mean, right? But it would seem to me if you have another place on your property where you could have something that's more like a hedge, you definitely can manage... Most fodder trees, but certainly willow in a hedge style uh, situation, it gets as big as you allow it to get. And and if you're keeping it rather small, so this could be something that'd be a, you know in a different part of the property, a, a, a willow hedge could be incredibly uh, productive and maybe give you more rabbit feed, uh, something like that. And mulberry also can this can be done with. You'd have to ask Nick on the poplar. I'm not sure how easy it would be to keep poplar into a small hedge form. Uh, but I've seen it done with willow a lot, and I've seen it done with people that are not doing it for fodder, but doing it for artist charcoal, uh, which is also another so dual, triple, quadruple purpose type thing. Just a thought. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about stock tanks and keeping them de-iced so you have water for your animals and doing that in a cold climate in a location where you do not have grid power. Uh, this question came in for me. I popped it over to Sean. Here's what he had to say on it. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Mills with Heck My Solar. And today I've got a question from Willie about uh, is solar a good setup for heating a stock tank in the winter? So here's the question. Uh, what is a good solar setup for heating a stock tank in the winter for Sean Mills? I live in central Kentucky and currently have a couple of cows that I'm watering from a water catchment system. I keep four 275-gallon IBC tanks full, but haven't overwintered them yet. I'm new to solar and hoping you could point me in the right direction of a solar setup to at least run one or multiple stock tank heaters or possibly aerators to keep the tanks from freezing. Thanks for any help. Willie, I get this kind of question a lot, and it's extremely difficult to determine how how likely your stored water is to actually freeze uh, because of all the different factors needed to perform those calculations. Um, Here's one of my favorite uh, issues with those calculations. Ice is actually more insulative than liquid water. 
So the moment ice actually forms, it becomes harder for the water under the ice to release its heat into the ambient air. So just a little interesting factoid there. Um, there's so many different factors you have to consider. So what I found is that most people are a lot more afraid of water uh, freezing in their tank and not afraid enough of water freezing in the pipes. Um, my experience with storing outside uninsulated water uh, storage in Tennessee showed that while it wasn't uncommon for my tanks to form a layer of ice on top, the rest of the tank never froze. I never had any problems getting uh, water, even through a few polar vortex winters. Um, the problem was always with the pipes. And whether that means the pipes froze and I couldn't get water through them, or they froze and they burst and I couldn't get water through them, uh, the pipes were always the problem. So that would be my primary focus if I were you. As a matter of fact, I would not put any piping on them if I had to, unless I had to. Uh, and if you've got four of these plumbed together, I would suggest putting unions on them so that you can disconnect the plumbing that connects the tanks together uh, through the winter just to prevent any water in them from causing a problem for you. Um, there are a few ways to handle this from the solar aspect. Um, you could put in enough solar to run a stock tank heater. Um, the problem is, once again, it's it's doing the math to figure out how long you actually have to run the heater. And so, you know, if we figure a duty cycle of 12 hours a day, um, it's real simple. You, you figure out how much wattage your heater is pulling. You multiply that times 12. And then in Kentucky, you're probably going to want to divide that number by three. And generally, that's how much wattage you need. Now, the problem is, is that I'm going to be generating, you know, over the course of about three hours enough. Um, I'm sorry, not over the course of three hours, but over the course of maybe six or seven hours, I'm going to be generating three hours worth of direct sun with whatever my solar array is in the winter in Kentucky. And now I've got to store that. And then I've got to use the stored um, energy to actually run the tank heater. So you're talking about a pretty significant amount of batteries compared to the amount of work you're actually trying to do. So I think heating, direct heating the water through solar is not a great idea, but you could build a solar water heater. And so essentially what you're doing there is you're using the um, radiant energy from the sun, you're collecting it in a solar collector, and then you're running your water through that solar collector so that a portion of the heat that's collected in the box gets transferred to the water in the pipes and then that water is going down into your system. So there's really two ways to do that. The most reliable method, I didn't say the cheapest, I said the most reliable method, would be to create a closed-loop water heating system that was run with glycol and powered by a pump that would run the glycol through each of your four storage tanks and through a solar water heater. Um, that would be the most reliable because the water in the actual pump and the solar water collector and the uh, exchanger coils could not, um, it would not be able to freeze because it's glycol. Uh, and that's really your biggest issue with this type of solar water heating in the winter is your system freezing and, and pipes again busting. So the most reliable method would be to do that. You'd build essentially a heat exchanger, um, like a coil of copper pipe that would go down into each of your uh, tanks 
and then you would connect those to each other, and then they, from there through a pump into a solar water heater, and the water would just circulate through that system uh, during the time of day uh, that there was enough sunlight to run the pump itself. Uh, the other option would be to uh, just build a direct solar water heater uh, that would be, again, pump-driven, a small solar panel similar to the system that Hawkeye Harry has demoed at a few times at Jack's. It's literally panel, um, regulator, and pump. Um, and you pump it. The only difference would be you'd be pumping it through a solar collector before it returned to the tank. Um, now, the problem with that is that you, you don't have, um, you know, you don't have a great way of getting that heated water across four different tanks. So the idea might be you set this system up and you run it on one tank per day and you just go out and move it. Um, that might be an option for you. If this is stuff that's going to sit out there for a while, you might be able to get away with doing it, you know, once a week moving that. I imagine this water is going to be rotated through cows at some point. So um, if the water is being pumped out uh, into a trough, then, um, you know, the fact that you're moving water out of a tank and then refilling it some way uh, would help as well. And, um, you know, at that, the biggest thing there is when you're designing that solar collector, you're going to want to make sure that everything is angled down so that you, when the pump goes off, all the water drains out of the system, right? That's going to be the key there so that there's nothing in the system overnight uh, to deal with overnight freezing temperatures. Um, honestly, the biggest thing you could do here, take your IBC totes out of the crate or out of the cage, put Reflectix, which is that kind of bubble wrap silver stuff, put that all around it, put it back in the metal cage, and then around the outside of the cage, just use something like a polyiso or rigid foam insulation. That's going to help prevent freezing. And again, it, it's hard to freeze 275 gallons of water. You need really, really cold for a prolonged period of time. So a little bit of insulation, protecting those pipes, and then a little bit of work to uh, kind of gain some ambient air temperature, um, or, or, or like I said, the, the radiant temperature, and put that back into the tank is going to be the way to go, I believe. So anyways, guys, keep the questions coming in, and I will keep getting them answered. Thank you. All right, good stuff from Sean. And, of course, we are beginning to think about Old Man Winter, because even though we are still a few days away from the first official day of fall, Winter comes fast once we turn the corner into September, October. And in certain parts of the country, it comes faster than others. So with that in mind, let's turn ourselves now from looking at stock tanks to looking at decks and thinking about the effects of winter weather on our decks and what to do about it. And we'll hear about that from Tim Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council. So let's dive right in. This week's question comes from John. He says, what maintenance should I do on a deck before winter? Info, just bought this old farmhouse last year. Congrats, man. Front and back decks are at least 15 years old. Not sure if they were ever stained. I see some rot on a few plank ends, and the 4x4 posts are a bit weathered. We live just south of Sacramento, so snow is not a concern. Rays, rain and frozen dew in the spring and winter worries as well as the blazing summer sun. Jay from North Cal. So, a few things I would do. Number one, 
You'll be able to enjoy it year round. So that's good because for the most part, it sounds like the weather's decent there. <laughs> um, first thing I would do, replace any boards that are rotted bad enough to need it because last thing you want to do is go out there on a cold, damp, rainy day and have to replace a board that you just stepped through. So do that. Just walk around any spongy spots, anything like that. Do that now before they become a huge problem. Now, number two, I love to pressure wash decks before putting them to bed for the winter. Now, if you have a pressure washer, they'll do a decent enough job, but you have to be careful not to leave streaks. You got to keep it up high enough that it doesn't chew into the wood and leave those nasty marks, but get it low enough that it actually knocks the dirt and debris off it. But there's a really cool tool that I use. I just used it last weekend to clean my deck, and it's called a surface cleaner. It's from Karcher. It's like 55 bucks on Amazon. It's universal. It's a round 15, 16-inch head that turns your pressure washer into a surface cleaner. So if you want to start a side hustle with sidewalks, decks, patios, you can. But for 55 bucks, it's worth it for a homeowner, even if you just pressure wash once a year. But it goes around, gives it a really good clean, kind of restores that look to the wood. That's what I would use. Now, if you have any grease or oil spilt from a barbecue, because that's what happened to mine this time, put some Dawn dish detergent down on the stain, scrub it in with a, you know, a hand scrubber like the brush or a nail brush, get it in there, let it sit for a little while, you know, pre-treat it for 15 minutes to a half hour, then pressure wash it. I had to make two or three passes, but I was able to get it completely cleaned up. So, you know, that's what I would say for sure. Now, if you want to seal it, I'm a big fan of Thompson's water seal. I did a segment on here a while back about it. My dad and I have used, have treated his deck for, I'm not even sure how many years, but back when I lived there, and that's been over 20 years ago, and it still looks really, really good. Apply it once a year. And the stuff looks great. The only issue that I've ran into with Thompson's, for the most part, is exactly with what you get. That freezing dew will sometimes turn it into a curling rink. So it has that pebbly ice on top. Just be careful. You know, there's nothing wrong with leaving the wood au naturel if you want to. But one thing I would never do again is solid stain on a deck. My wife talked me into doing that last year. We did it on the fence. Looks great. Love it. But on the deck, no matter how hard you try, the stuff just doesn't hold up. So right now, on one of my decks, I am stuck with stuff that's come off a bit because it's a high traffic area, but it's still stuck enough that the pressure washer won't quite take it off. So I like a semi-transparent stain. It fades instead of chips or peels off. So yeah, take that for what it's worth. Now, you're not going to be dealing with any of the winter stuff, but I figured I would take a quick minute to fill other people in where they the fellers and ladies that live where the cold can hurt your face a few things i'm going to do put away all my summer furniture here in about a month all my solar lights put them all away so they don't get ruined they don't get broken pick up anything off your deck that you don't want frozen there for the rest of the winter and be tripping over it dog toys Lawn chairs, anything like that. Just make sure there's nothing there. Clean your gutters above your deck. I mean, clean all your gutters, but especially above your deck, because the last thing you want to do is have an overflow of water and then come out and end up with a really hurt back because you just slipped where the ice built up. And then trim back any branches 
that are hanging over your deck because they're going to collect snow and they can break, swing down, and do some serious damage. That's about all. And then, you know, get out there every single time it snows, blow the snow off, clean the snow off, because the last thing you want to do is have somebody walk over the snow, pack it down, turn it to the turn it to ice, and then you got to scrape it off. So if you stay on top of it and clean it every single time it snows, then you'll have a much safer environment to enjoy what you can enjoy outdoors in the middle of winter. So I hope that helped. I tried to broaden the question to appeal to a bunch of people. If you guys have other questions, send them to Jack. I'll gladly answer them for you. And I personally just launched the Patch of the Month Club. So if you're into morale patches, go by patchofthemonth.co. Check that out. Sign up. $10 a month, $100 a year. You get a brand new morale patch every single month delivered to your door. Funny ones, politically incorrect ones, a bunch of different things. And if you are interested in dropping by the workshop, YouTube, all different platforms, three times a week, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, drop by, be part of the podcast. I would appreciate it. So, guys, that's it for me this week. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I, I do have... um the uh, attachment, the, the kind of universal pressure washer service cleaner attachment that Tim mentioned uh, in the show notes today for episode 3168. If you look down in the bullet points, you'll see right next to uh, Tim's segment, service cleaner Tim mentioned in blue. And, of course, blue means click on it. you got a link. You can get over to Amazon and find it. I think this is a really cool idea. And some work I did recently cleaning the floor in my uh, my garage, it would have been really helpful. I'll just leave it at that, but it involves ducks that don't belong in the garage getting in the garage. Oh, so I want to talk to you today about just kind of more of a – I had some serious topics I chimed in on going through today. I wanted something that's just more of a productive and kind of not real heavy topic for my segment today. And it's probably a five-minute segment if that. But it's a plant called python snake bean. And I did talk about this plant earlier in the year. The seed source I have for you is uh, Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. You'll see this called a lot of different things. It's actually a gourd, uh, like a loofah gourd or like a birdhouse gourd. It's like that type of plant. And that's great because unlike squashes, gourds are pretty much immune to squash bugs and totally immune to squash vine borers. I have never seen a squash vine borer get into the thin, hard, uh, even, you know, it's even thinner and harder and less appealing. Uh, than uh, something like Trombuccino zucchini and uh, Simuschetta, uh, those those variety of squash that have, like like butternut have that very uh, borer resistant uh, uh, stock. This plant is pretty amazing. I grew it this year. It is described as a plant that loves heat. I can't say that I agree with that after growing it this year. It did not do well for me in the peak of summer. It looked unhappy. It it was a hard year to even keep the garden watered sufficiently, though, so that may have played in on it. But eventually, I basically tarped that enti- the entire bed that it was in and left open only the part it was growing out of because it was still alive and I wanted to give it a chance. And I watered it heavily at that point, and it began to look a little bit better, but it didn't really start to produce until now. Now, I'm going to say there could be a reason why. There could be a reason why it didn't produce till now. 
it is not pollinated by bees. It is pollinated by nocturnal moths. And maybe the moths in my area that pollinate it didn't show up till now. But I've heard a lot of people say that they have really great results with what are called hummingbird moths. They're moths that look like hummingbirds. We have tons of those around earlier in the year. But our insects were vastly disrupted by this drought, too. There's a lot of things going on in my property right now, so I'm just saying the mitigation of this. Maybe it would do good in a hot year normally. But there's a lot of insects and other activity going on and plant activity going on right now that normally we see in the spring and we're seeing in the fall because it didn't happen in the spring. And, like, nature's going to do what nature's going to do, so that mitigates it. But even said what I noticed was I did get some fruit set in the summer, and it didn't do well. And the leaves of the plant, I was like, oh, my, is, is it really going to get the same kind of rust disease that beans get here in our heat? And it kind of looked like it, and now it's kind of all gone. But a lot of the leaves looked very sick, and some of the leaves on it even looked like crinkled up. And I don't know if that's because it was getting not enough water or whatever, or the heat, but since it's from southern India, it, it, it should do well. So, again... However, now it's starting to throw on these giant snake beans, which are actually a gourd. And the picture of today's episode shows me standing with the largest one I have so far. It's a baby. It's a perfect size to cut off and eat right now, but it'll get a lot bigger. And what this plant does is it gets this huge, long, bean-shaped, it looks like a giant snake. And there are more than, there's a lot of varieties of this plant. Some come from more in the area around China, and they tend to be a solid green versus having the stripe coloration that the ones that I'm growing have. They're a multi-use plant. Some of them come from the African continent as well. So this is a pretty broad area, northern Africa, central Africa, into central Asia, and into China, and different varieties of them. And uh, they, they all have a, a seed that eventually at a certain point as the seed is forming in the plant turns bright red. And the pulp of that seed can be used like tomato paste. And it's often used in things like curries and African dishes as well. The plant itself, this is what makes it unique. It gets huge. I saw a video today of a little girl trying to carry one. She couldn't carry it. It was about as big as her. Now, most gourds that are edible gourds and taste good, they have a point where they get too big. And they're just not good anymore. These things get huge. They Even when they're big, you can still eat the peel on them. If they get really, really big, the peel gets kind of tough. You can just take like a potato peeler or a Y peeler and just peel them. And they're still delicious. They don't get pithy. Generally, kind of the neck, kind of like a trombuccino zucchini, about a third of the plant will have a solid neck. You can eat all of it. As you get down into the, the seed chamber, what will happen is when it gets really large, you'll get uh, kind of a, a pith in there like you get with a pumpkin, and you'll have to clean it out, but the meat is still good. Where if you take it young, you can just eat it all. Okay. There's a point at which you really don't want to harvest it. And that is, it's, it's an in-between point. It's where you're getting all that pith and you're going to lose all of that food, but the seeds aren't ready yet. If you want to harvest the seeds, you want to like it full, and you want those seeds to get that bright red pulp on them, and the pulp is soft, but the seed is hard. But the thing that makes me consider them a food security plant is that you can grow these things to an enormous size, 
and they're still delicious. That's the thing. The, 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 like the Trombacino zucchini I grow, it's the same thing. It's a huge thing. And that whole neck is, you know, is, is solid squash meat that can be used. These are kind of like that in a different way, and they are really good. I watched another video of a guy, I think his name's Papa Prepper or something like that. Um, white dude with drug, dreadlocks for whatever that's worth. But he had three of them, and he said how many? he's going to make pickles out of them instead of cooking them like a fresh vegetable. How many quarts of pickles can I get? Six. Each one made two quarts of pickles. And because if you do let them get big enough, you'll be able to save the seed. They're sustainable, and there ain't, I, I can't see anything that's going to cross-pollinate with these things. I said to Nick Ferguson today, I sent him a picture of it. I'm like, the, the flowers on these things look like something from a Star Trek episode. Like, we beamed down to a planet found this unusual plant. It's what it makes you think of. Um, it, it's a really awesome plant. Now, I had thought that Baker Creek didn't have them anymore. And I went on their site, and what happened, I searched for it, found rareseeds.com, Baker Creek listing, and I clicked on it, and it said, this page doesn't exist. I searched the Baker Creek site for Python, and I found nothing in their search box. Then I went a little bit deeper in their site, and I just went and started browsing through, and I found snake beans and Indian snake beans. So it's still there. They still have it. I have a link in the show notes today. You don't get a lot of seeds with a packet. I think you get like five seeds for five bucks or something like that. They say minimum seed counts five bucks. They're also out of stock. But this would be something I would put on the radar, and I would give it a shot at your homestead. I have been very happy with the limited success I've gotten, because now that it's producing, I'm going to get a ton of this. I'm definitely going to save seed, and I learned something about this plant that I didn't know. And that is, and this is why I don't have that many of them this year. They have poor germination because the seed's so hard. And if you score the seed a bit, like with some sandpaper, it's called scaration, and soak it in water overnight before you plant it, your germination will go to almost 100%. Otherwise, it's like 10 to 20%. So that's a good thing to know. Um, it's also been kind of mitigated by the fact that I had, a, I had two vines uh, that are no longer with us. They didn't die from disease or heat or drought. They're on the arches that go between my garden beds. And one for one reason or another... They incurred the wrath of the goose. I keep geese, and goose rage is a thing, and goose rage can be taken out on something that you just, like, it's been there all year, and all of a sudden the goose decides, I hate that thing, and they go nuts on it. I had a really nice hybrid willow doing really well this year, uh, new planted this spring, got it, suffered through the heat and the misery and dark thing. I kept it watered, and it was going to make it, and it, all of a sudden one day it was just looking awful, and we went over. It had no bark, and all the cambium was gone. And it was about as big as like your, your pointer finger around, the trunk on it, a couple feet high, maybe three foot high. The geese just decided one day, I don't want that thing there. It angers me, and they attacked it. So I lost two of my vines this year. So I only have one vine that made it, and... Uh, Hopefully it will survive goose rage, and I know now to maybe give them a little bit of protection where the geese can reach. Uh, but this is something, again, I think there are certain plants that even if we're not going to say this is something I grow every year because I love it, I think this will become one if you do. 
But there are certain plants that we should have seed stock for, and we should grow a little bit of every year, and we should keep our seed stock fresh because it's a food security plant. This Trombacino zucchini, Asian long beans, and Ipomoea aquatica, to me, those are four plants that provide high food security, and I wanted to kind of bring that up with you today. And look, we went 10 minutes with the sub. sub uh, what I thought would be a very short segment. Anyway, with that, I am ready to wrap things up. I want to remind you guys, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Today's item of the day, General Hydroponics Rapid Rooter Glow, Grow Plugs. We've been talking today quite a bit about things that have to do with winter. Winter is coming. We talked about food security. That's important. Uh, for many of us, we live in climates that it's either impossible Uh, without extraordinary measures like greenhouses and heating, or it's just difficult or maybe not so fun to garden through our winters. And fresh vegetables and herbs in our winters, especially leaf crops, are really great. Rapid rooter growth plugs, to me, are the way to do hydroponics with the easy button. There's other ways to do it, maybe a little bit less expensive. I reuse my grow plugs three or four times. That makes them so cheap it's not worth worrying about it. Um, all I do is put them on top of my ebb and flow beds. The worms come up, eat all the roots out of them, give them a little bit of a diluted hydrogen peroxide solution to clean them, and use them again until they start to fall apart. I just keep using them. Um, when you do that, you end up spending about $0.10 cents a piece before they wear out. And they are just, again, the easy button. There's nothing quite like a fresh green salad with fresh basil in February with an indoor, indoor hydro system, Uh, or a small heated greenhouse system, even if you want to do that. And now is the time to start working on building out or breaking back out, if you did one last year, your indoor hydroponic systems. And I would get these things now. They are in stock. They tend to go in and out of stock. And, of course, when everybody does a thing, that's when things go out of stock, especially during supply shortages that we're still experiencing. You can learn more about them at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Just scroll down below this episode. You'll find them right there. Again, today's episode uh, was 3168. And if you can't find them and you're hearing this in the future or something like that, just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and, and search for Rooter, R-O-O-T-E-R. It'll be about the only result that comes up. Whenever you're looking for something on the website, remember we do have a search function. It works rather well. And uh, check that out. And remember, no matter what you buy, Rapid Rooter Grow Plugs, anything I recommend, or even something I don't recommend, as long as you start your shopping at tspaz.com, that's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com, you will help us out. Uh, with that, guys, I'll sign off for the weekend. I'll be back on Monday. Hope you guys have a great and productive weekend. I know I will, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? said you should have a house the American way dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way